Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Amina Keshtan Kamel, and you're listening to Legalese Podcast. Episode 8 will be introduced by my guest co-host today, ASU Law Professor Eric Luna, whose biography you can find on our website. This is Eric Luna. I am the faculty director of the Academy for Justice, a new center at Arizona State University that seeks to address critical issues of criminal justice in the United States and to help inform educational, cultural, and policy efforts. In particular, the Academy for Justice hopes to make the relevant law and literature accessible to those who might use this information and analysis in discussing and implementing criminal justice reforms. By connecting the world of academics with real-world policy and practice, the Academy for Justice seeks to bridge the gap between scholarship on the books and the reform of criminal justice on the ground. The Academy's first work product, a four-volume report titled Reforming Criminal Justice, was authored and reviewed by leading scholars in criminal law and other disciplines, and it details potential areas of criminal justice reform and policy recommendations to achieve such reform. The report is freely available online at our website, academyforjustice.org. The Academy for Justice also supports visiting scholars and educational programs, such as a new law school course on the Federalist Papers, taught by a leading academic and prominent jurist. Today, we are joined by two of these distinguished visiting instructors, Sixth Circuit Judge John Nalbandian and Professor John Baker. You can find their biographies on LegalEasePodcast.com. Welcome. So let's start with Judge Nalbandian. Please tell us a bit about your background like how you developed an interest in the law, and when and why you developed an interest in specifically judging. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me, and, and I want to thank the law school for hosting us. I've, I've uh, had a good time so far, and, and I'm looking forward to the rest of my experience here. I, I suppose my interest in the law developed when I was young. Um, uh, when I was a kid, I was kind of interested in politics and public policy issues. Um, but I ended up going to college and, and studying business uh, and then decided kind of late in my college career that I was interested in, in the law, really, and, and not so much business. So um, I ended up going to law school at Virginia, and I uh, developed, I think the question was about an interest in judging. I, I clerked, um, as many law students do, clerked for a judge after law school. A, a federal appellate judge in Texas, and I think, you know, when, I think you can't help but have that experience and think about, hey, what would it be like to be a judge? But it's not really something that I really aspired to, only because there are so many kind of random events that have to happen in order for you to ever become a to become a federal judge. So after my clerkship, which was in Texas, I practiced in in Washington D.C. for a few years at a private law firm, and then I moved to 
northern Kentucky, which is right across the border from Cincinnati, uh, and I worked at a law firm in Cincinnati for almost 20 years, I guess, before getting nominated almost a year ago and, and getting on the bench last May. Wonderful. And congratulations, of course. Thank you. Thank you. I will say that my, um, I was thinking about this, I'd forgotten, but my mother was born in Arizona, actually. She was born in a, a Japanese internment camp that's about 30 miles to the south of here. But otherwise, my family really is from California, and I didn't mention this, but I grew up in, in Kansas and went to high school in Kansas. Do you, do you mind if I have a quick follow-up on that? It's a really interesting story. Did that experience, your mother's experience, had, did that play a part in your own life, <coughs> in your own thoughts about uh, the law or your thoughts about uh, that particular time in, in American history? Not really that much. I mean, I, I um, you know, my mother is, um, actually she's passed away, but, you know, is Japanese. My father is Armenian, but I grew up in, in Kansas which is kind of, kind of the cultural opportunities for both of the of those backgrounds. Or it's not really the kind of place where you would be immersed in that, in having that culture, if 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 you know what I mean. Um, as opposed to being in Southern California, where where both of them were from. So it really wasn't a big part of of what I was thinking about when I was thinking about the law. Um, it's interesting though that it comes up right when you study like Korematsu in law school and you're thinking, well, wow, that's, you know, it hits kind of... That's part, that's part of your family home. story. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, um, but um, it really was, it really was never, it, it was it, obviously a part of my life, but not kind of, a, not much of a motivator, I would, I would, to be honest. But as I've grown older, it's kind of come up and, and has, you know, meant, meant some more to me. Thank you for sharing that. So, Professor Baker, how about you? Well, thank you uh, <laughs> to the law school, and especially to Eric, for really hosting us and making this possible. As far as my interest in the law, I can still remember I was 12 years old, and I was shooting baskets with the kid next door who was at the University of Michigan Law School. And I told him, I said, I'm going to grow up to be a constitutional lawyer. and. Unusual at 12 years old, but I, you know, a lot of exposure to it growing up where it was in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, so, but after that, you know, I went to, to Michigan Law School, and um, the last thing in the world I thought I would be was a criminal lawyer. Uh, but I clerked for a district judge in New Orleans, and wow, what an experience I had because at the time, the judge I had had been a federal prosecutor, and he was considered by many the best trial judge in the Fifth Circuit. And a lot of the other federal judges really tried to duck big criminal cases, but he would grab them as soon as they recused themselves. So we had every major criminal defense attorney in the country in our courtroom over the period of two years, and we had fabulous trials because he wasn't happy if he wasn't on the bench trying a criminal case. So from that, I, I then went into the New Orleans DA's office with Harry Connick, father of Harry Connick Jr. And uh, other than teaching, that was the best job in the world. My wife didn't think so because I'd be up calling witnesses at midnight uh, because it, would, it was crazy the way we had to operate. And uh, 
Anyway, from there I went to teaching criminal law and criminal procedure for a while until I realized there's no sense in teaching criminal procedure unless you understand the Constitution first. Very good. These are such interesting backgrounds, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your new class that you're teaching here at ASU. And this is a question for, uh, for both of you, and either of you can answer it. Um, what are the Federalist Papers? Who, who wrote these documents? What were the authors seeking to achieve through their writing? Well, they are 85 essays published in New York papers. We would say today they were op-eds. Okay. So the project was started by Alexander Hamilton, and he brought in uh, James Madison and John Jay. As you know, John Jay, for health or other reasons, only wrote about five of them, and they were mostly on foreign policy. But Hamilton and Madison, who would later be political opponents, were united in the effort to get the Constitution ratified. And they were both for that. They were both against the Confederation as it existed, and they thought there had to be a very different structure, although building on the existing Confederation in a way. So in this project, um, they divided up, and Hamilton, uh, excuse me, Madison is really the political theorist. He read everything. He uh, focused on Congress, the legislative branch, which he didn't trust at all. And that was odd for a democratic republic to have that view. But he also, from that, was very insistent on the form of separation of powers. So he writes the really the key structural essays and the matters on Congress. Hamilton, on the other hand, wasn't as much the theorist, but he was considered the greatest lawyer in New York at the time, without a doubt. And he really was focused on the executive, especially in foreign policy, and the judiciary. It, it was a good fit. They, they complemented each other. And like many things, people who don't necessarily agree on everything, they agree for the present purpose of what they're opposed to, what they were opposed to, what's the existing situation. And out of that, we get our basic struggle, at least up through the Civil War, as between whether this is going to be the form of the Constitution that comes out of the draft and is explained in the Federalist Papers, or will it be what those who didn't leave the country, the Anti-Federalists, wanted a confederation? And I think you have to understand this, really, to appreciate the fact that we could never settle the slavery issue without a war because they were dug in on different views of what the Constitution was. Even though, strangely, in a way, Jefferson thought that, that the Federalist Papers were very good and he required that they be read at UVA. But there are different views in reading the Federalist. It's not as if it is something that is crystal clear and everything, but it is clear that there are certain foundational principles. So that's why we're going back to it, because lawyers, I think, need to understand it. Whether they agree with it or not, it's like understanding the architecture of a building. You may not like it, but if you have to live in the building, you better at least understand how it's put together. 
are, were there ideas, concepts, or arguments, and you mentioned separation of powers as being one of them, that proved to be particularly powerful in the framing of the U.S. Constitution? Um, were there, were there uh, uh, concepts that you could link directly from the Federalist Papers to the Constitutional Convention and ultimately the document that was produced? You know, in a broad, broad-based way of looking at it, I mean, federalism, the idea that there's power that's shared between the states and the federal government, um, that's a big theme in the Federalist Papers. Separation of powers, the, the branches and the way that checks and balances, as you know, we learned in high school civics, that goes back to Federalist 51 and, and some of the others. The idea of judicial review that courts can strike down statutes that are inconsistent with the Constitution, it, the Marbury versus Madison, of course, the famous case. A lot, if you read Federalist 78 and you read Marbury versus Madison, you can't help but see the similarity there that that Marshall must have been aware of what Hamilton was thinking and writing in, in 78. All of those concepts are, I mean, they're enshrined in the Constitution. They're explained in the Federalist Papers. I think they were they were powerful arguments. I mean, the, the, the papers were designed to try to get people to vote for ratification of the of the Constitution, and it was not it, it, it was not a done deal. It wasn't a foregone conclusion that the Constitution was going to be adopted. I mean, there was you know rigorous debate. There were luminaries uh, on both sides and arguments um, on both sides, and uh, that's something that in the course we're we're trying to go over both the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist. What were the arguments against? What were those writings like and, and delving into those? I think one of the, the other concepts that was, that's, that's powerful and, and proved to be a, a strong argument was the idea that both sides, of course, were concerned about liberty generally, how to protect liberty, how is the government going to protect our liberties. The, and, and one of the arguments in the Federalist is that the very structure of the government, by diffusing power, by dividing it between states and, and the federal government, by by put, pitting the branches kind of against each other in some ways, the checks and balances, that that would be the way the structure itself would would be able to preserve liberties, as opposed to just relying on, for example, a bill of rights. But that having the structure in place would be the first kind of line of defense. Why are the Federalist Papers relevant today? And and. Professor Baker touched on that just a minute ago, the idea that providing some background history when people are thinking about these, about the Constitution and constitutional law. How do these documents speak to modern-day concerns that we face in the United States? Well, first of all, it's grounded in an understanding of human nature. It's not like some of the courses you get in political science today that are behavioral or statistical. They understood human nature. And I know today people, many people deny that there is such a thing as human nature. But if there is human nature, which I believe there is, I don't think human beings have changed that much. Our circumstances have changed. We've advanced technologically. But if you look at what drives people, their motivations, the lust for power, <laughs> I don't think that's changed at all. So if what you're really concerned about is the rule of law, which means restraining power. How do you restrain a po power in a popularly elected government? That is the major issue. 
And oddly, in many ways for Americans, it is difficult to understand the ways people who founded this country 200 years ago thought, yet they could understand the ancients, Greece and Rome, better than we can understand them. The mode of thinking, especially in law schools, is radically different, and not necessarily for the better. So I think there is a lot to realize, to learn, just as there is in any great books course. Because the Federalist is considered by political theorists one of the greatest works of political theory, certainly the greatest ever produced in the United States in all time. I would add to just in terms of modern relevance as a kind of as a practical matter for lawyers, um, <coughs> most or many of the Supreme Court's separation of powers decisions, for example, cite the Federalist Papers. And um, as part of our course, you know, some of some of the assigned reading are, are actually cases, decisions, and including modern decisions where the justices are citing and talking about what the Federalist Papers say about this particular federalism or separation of powers issue. So there is a modern kind of relevance. It's it's still something that informs our view today of, of those concepts. A quick uh, question, follow up on that. Do you think the justices, in their interpretation of the Federalist Papers, do you think they get it right? Well, it's not getting it right because I was on a Civil Rights Commission advisory board for years with a woman who was head of the local common cause. And probably the only thing we agreed on was the importance of the Federalist Papers. And she obviously read it somewhat differently than I do. And, and Jefferson obviously read it differently than Hamilton did. So. It is the basis for our conversation in this country. And if, if we don't have that common ground for conversation, we can see what happens in Washington. There's not much deliberating going on there. There's great division and people aren't happy with it on both sides, the polls show. Why? Before you can civilly disagree, you have to agree on something. Well said. And as a segue to a second topic for today's podcast, I'm interested in whether the Federalist Papers had anything to say about criminal justice, and perhaps particularly federal criminal justice. So did the Federal Papers speak to concerns of federal criminal jurisdiction, or the powers of Congress to enact federal crimes, or the authority of executive branch to enforce such crimes? And I know you, you mentioned some of this here and there, but... Well, there, there was no real specific address other than matters of piracy, something like that. But the whole point was, that the, quote, police power was left in the states, and there were only a couple of intrusions, the contract clause, the uh, ex post facto provisions. In other words, other than that, states control things. Now, the bad part of that was slavery, and that they could not be pierced on that. The design of the Constitution was to control the states, and it was about control of the states at the borders. States lost their ultimate sovereignty because they lost control of their borders. And that was key. And it was key in the sense that both Madison and Hamilton understood that over time the inability to control their borders would change their population mixes. Yeah, I would add that um, one of the rights 
again, we all think of rights kind of as the Bill of Rights and then the amendments, but there are individual rights that are in the actual document um, itself and not in the Bill of Rights, like the right against having ex post facto laws or, or the right to habeas corpus. But one of the rights is the trial by jury in, in federal criminal situations and that's specifically in the in the Constitution itself so and, that was a and that is addressed in the <clears throat> Federalist 84 when they're addressing the question of not a Bill of Rights formally and they say we have the most important rights the ones that you've listed right but I think that as John said the idea the idea of a broad broad-based federal criminal justice system and federal criminal law is not apparent because the states were still viewed as, as they are today, right? 90 plus percent of criminal litigation occurs in state courts, not in federal courts. I mean, that's still true today. Um, even though we think of federal criminal prosecutions as sometimes more high profile because they're bigger conspiracies or they go across state lines or they involve organized crime or whatever it is, but still, the nuts and bolts of criminal law in this country still we're looking at, you know, mostly state court and, and state issues. I have a quick follow-up that just came to mind. Uh, I have to say I feel incredibly blessed that I've been exposed to the Federalist Papers as a law student, as a 1L. You and were here? Yes, I was wow, an ASU job. law student. And specifically, it was Professor Paul Eckstein who had us go through the Federalist Papers and apply them to cases, and we did a, a, a we spent a chunk of our time on the Federalist Papers. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about extending this type of education into undergraduate studies and high school? Because I almost I almost feel like there should be. <laughs> well, strangely, you should mention that <laughs> because. Uh, first of all, my exposure to the Federalist Papers came as an undergraduate. And then in um, the Bicentennial of the Constitution, I was asked to review textbooks for high schools in Louisiana. And I was sitting in the, my office with the various books I had looked at the statutes. And literally, this is true, I, the book opened and I couldn't believe it. I looked at this statute that required the teaching of the Federalist Papers in high schools in Louisiana. And wow. so I called the Department of Education and asked them about this, and they didn't know about the statute. But a former secretary of mine was down there and said that I had struck panic through the whole place. <laughs> so I tried to negotiate with them, and they wouldn't negotiate, so I sued them, and I won, and got an injunction that required them to do that. It made the Wall Street Journal, and then somebody called me up and gave me some money, and we started there are about 18 states in the country that require it, but guess what? It's almost not done anywhere. Now, there's an interesting article by Peter Berkowitz on why colleges don't teach the Federalist Papers, because basically it's an antidote to the so-called living constitution. That's why it's not taught. Um, if you don't mind, let's, let's turn directly to the issue of federal criminal justice, uh, beginning with, uh, with you, Professor Baker. Um, you've been one of the nation's leading critics on what has come to be known as over-federalization. Could you tell us what is meant by the term over-federalization? Well, the federal government, mostly using the so-called Commerce Clause hook, 
has enacted crime after crime to the point where we have over 5,000 federal crimes at this time. That's just in the U.S. Code. That doesn't count what could be hundreds of thousands, literally, in the uh, regs that dealing with other things. And it's just the, the reality is that you can find a crime to fit anything. Indeed, every, I, I literally mean this. Everyone who is 18 years of age or older could, not that they will be, could be indicted for something. I mean, Scalia, in the honest services case, famously said, you know, under the interpretation given by the lower federal courts, if you call in sick to the office and you're not sick and you go to the ball game, bingo, you have violated the honest services provision as it was being interpreted then. That is way too much discretion for anybody. And given the discretion, that's too much power. And this power was never intended to be there. I mean, even Hamilton, who was the most nationalistic of those at the convention, famously said, the federal government has no power over the police power of Philadelphia. So I don't take the view that Jefferson had that the only federal crimes there could be would be the ones listed in the Constitution. But as, as Marshall said in McCullough, there are certain things that are implicated. That is, any crime against a federal entity obviously has to be within the scope of the federal government to defend itself. In reality, the federal government spends, federal prosecutors spend so much time on things that are actually covered by state law. And they may not like the way the state's doing things, but that's not really their problem. That is, it shouldn't be the federal problem. And it's not, to, it's not like the federal government doesn't have plenty of work to do. The internet has exposed millions of people to identity fraud. I had my ID stolen, okay? So I called up and tried to get some federal agency to do something about it. They said, go to your local police. What sense does that make? The identity theft occurred in another state. This is where they should be going. They're not, much of what they're doing, they're doing the wrong things. They aren't doing the things that need to be done. As a follow-up to that, I'd like to ask you about a, particularly powerful player in the American criminal justice system, uh, the prosecutor. In a speech in 1940, then U.S. Attorney General and future Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson said that federal prosecutors are, quote, one of the most powerful peacetime forces known to our country. The prosecutor has more control over life, liberty, and reputation than any other person in America, unquote. So some 80 years later, and given what you just said, do you do Jack, Justice Jackson's words still ring true to you? And if so, is this necessarily a problem? And, and how might it be dealt with? Well, first of all, I've quoted Jackson's words that you just read in articles. That's one. Two, from the time that I was a clerk in federal district court watching federal criminal cases, the playing field has gotten tremendously changed. That is, at that time, the forces were fairly well balanced between defense attorneys and prosecutors if you had the resources on the defense side. That's no longer true. 
as a result of the war on crime and the resources thrown at the Justice Department, not just the prosecutors, but at all the investigating agencies, it's no longer a question of very many people going to trial. They can't afford to go to trial. The question is negotiating with the prosecutor over sentencing. Sentencing that even though the sentencing guidelines are not mandatory, a sentencing situation in which the number of years that are theoretically possible from the indictment forces the defense into a situation where even if they have legitimate defense arguments, they can't afford to raise them. Judge Nalbandian, much of your professional career as an attorney focused on appellate matters and commercial litigation, including topics such as antitrust law. But as I understand it, you also worked on some criminal matters. Now that you are on the federal bench, what has been the most surprising or disturbing or even uplifting as you have worked within the federal criminal justice system as a judge? One of the things that we've grappled with that the judiciary has been grappling with are um, a lot of issues dealing with so-called career offenders or habitual uh, criminals. There's, you know, there was a public policy movement to try to isolate the individuals who were kind of committing the most crimes and and to try to to try to you know focus on them and I, I think there's a federal statute called the Armed Career Criminal Act that that is part of that and we see, we see a lot of cases that involve kind of the interpretation of that statute and specifically it's kind of a three strikes and you're out type statute but there are a lot of, there's a lot of debate about really what counts as a strike. So there's the Supreme Court has taken case after case on the statute and continues to do it, and and the and and we we struggle with that too. I, I I'm a little bit surprised at, at how many how many there there are. The my practice, you know, I did some kind of white collar crime fraud defense cases, and I also did some cases involving sentencing and the sentencing guidelines. So I, I haven't, it, there are a lot of, there are a lot of sentencing cases, and I guess I'm a little bit surprised at the, at the number of, of challenges to the, to the, um, to, to sentences. But the guidelines, of course, as John mentioned, are no longer mandatory, and so that's given more discretion to trial judges. And as a result, I think has created at least some some other avenues for appeal that maybe hadn't been there. I'm not sure I've found anything really uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's but that's an interesting question because I think kind of in other parts of my career and boards that I've served on and other things, I think uplifting stories that come out of criminal the criminal justice system tend to be stories about rehabilitation or redemption or seeing somebody who is a victim kind of have the courage to testify or uh, seeing somebody who was arrested kind of turn their life around and that's mostly that that those things happen and um, but they're mostly going to be seen by trial judges and not appellate judges who are kind of on the ground and sentencing defendants and seeing victims and uh, doing that kind of thing. So in my position, it's, it's not 
I don't really have direct contact with anything, any people other than lawyers, basically. I will say this, though, as part of my new judge training, and you'll be surprised, Silver, and I suppose that there is some something called new judge training. There's a baby judge school. It's mostly for district judges, um, although the appellate judges are encouraged to attend. It's not a lot of training. I mean, there's not a huge onboarding process when you become a judge. It's basically you show up and, and you start working. But one of the things they do, and I thought this was very interesting, was they do take you to a, a federal prison. And they take the judges to a federal prison, and we uh, toured the facility and heard from the people who work there and who run the prison, but also some of the prisoners who came in and told some of their individual stories about what their experience was like, and especially kind of the drug rehabilitation programs that they were running in that prison to try to, to, try to help them. So that was, I suppose, a little bit in, uplifting, I suppose, in that category. But. Well, thank you for that. I actually have a follow-up question to that specifically. Sure. Was there a particular appellate judge or any other judge that served as a mentor to you during the, the training? I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by this training program. There are mentor judges, actually. There were two district judges. So the, the training program is geared toward district ju- judges, trial judges. And the reason, and it makes perfect sense to me because being a trial judge, trial judge is, is just, it's a, different, it's a different kind of job. And you have a lot of discretion as a trial judge. And people don't realize that, yes, you can be appealed, but 95% of what you do is you're the la- going to be the last word on it. And a lot of lawyers grow up doing criminal law or civil law, and kind of once they become a judge, you, are, you have to do all of it. And I think the training is designed to help you get comfortable with various aspects of the law, including... Specifically, we did a day on sentencing and, and doing a sentence, giving a sentence, and how do you, you know, what is your approach and what, what are the criteria that you must consider under the Constitution, under the guidelines, under the federal statutes. So there were mentor judges who, who ran the training, who were experienced district judges who had, you know, been on the bench for 20 years and kind of gave us their wisdom, really, their ex- what they had experienced, what they, had, what they thought worked and didn't work. So that was, that was very helpful uh, to, to hear them. Thank you for elaborating on that. So I want to follow up here regarding district judges and the criminal justice system. The judge and I were actually involved in the same criminal case at a distance from each other. And the only reason that I was involved in that case was a case that we won down in Louisiana. And the reason we won the case was because the district judge ruled in our favor. And we got the clear, it was a mail fraud issue where the feds were expanding their theory of the mail fraud. They're always doing that. And so he ruled against the government. That led to an immediate appeal. But put yourself in the position of a district judge. And we have to understand they're still human beings. 
And the last thing district judges like is to be reversed. I know I've had district judges stop me in the hallway in the law school and say, you know, how are we doing on this appeal? I mean, it's crazy. If you're a district judge and you rule for the government and not the defendant, the case is never going to be appealed because the defendant's going to almost always plead guilty and that's the end of the matter. You rule for the defendant and it's a guaranteed appeal. One, if I could change one thing in criminal justice at the federal level, I would give an interlocutory right of appeal when the Justice Department comes up with a new untested theory. Because that's how they establish the theory. They're changing the law by expanding the theory and then getting pleas to it, and then that becomes the law even though Congress has never expanded it. Have you, have you spoken to people either uh, on the Hill or in the Justice Department about this idea and what has been the Forget response? about talking to anybody in the Justice Department. Look, I mean, my sister works in the criminal division of the Justice Department. Uh, and I was on the, the uh, task force on over-federalization. You know, there are a lot of well-intentioned people in the Justice Department, both career and political. But generally, they put up a pretty tough wall. So it's not likely that you're going to get any help from the Justice Department. And I was involved as a consultant to the bipartisan task force on overfederalization. And yeah, there was a lot of uh, germination of new ideas there. But as you know, the focus was on sentencing reform and mens rea. I assume that you believe some sort of major federal code reform is necessary to deal with the problem of overfederalization, And maybe I'm wrong about that assumption, but if that's true, how could this be done, and is Congress up to the task? Well, one, we, it's not a federal code. That's the whole point. Most of the crimes are not real crimes. They are under the Commerce Clause. They're regulations, even the ones that are so-called crimes. And much of it doesn't belong there at all. If I could do it, I, I would strip out many of the crimes. And the reality is we know prosecutors use very few of them. And people say, well, they use very few of them. Why are you worried about the number? It's not just the prosecutors. It's the investigation people. You've got law enforcement agencies out there that will use bizarre crimes to go do a morning raid on somebody and the prosecutor is not going to take the charge that they actually file if he or she takes the charge. But that doesn't restrain them from making the raid. And they've got the probable cause. They get the probable cause simply because they can find it someplace among all these things. And, people ha and one of the things I dropped on the committee in one of my testimonies, and it just shocked everybody, I said, with drones, just think what the feds can do then. Just think of all the violations of agricultural laws and everything else. All they have to do is spot it, send the picture to the, to the, uh, you know, the owner of the property, and boom, okay, you know, plead guilty, pay us, whatever. I mean, the the incredible power that the federal prosecutors already have is only going to be enhanced by technology. Do you think there is, a, do you foresee any way in which this could be changed, where that type of reform 
what, in terms of, of, of the federal, what is punishable and what's, what's criminalized and punishable under federal law. And, and is Congress going to be able to do that, or are we simply too polarized and uh, too beholden to certain interests? Well, it's not so much a question of polarization. Um, it's a question of re-election. Every member of the Congress is fearful that if they vote against something that is perceived as being pro-law enforcement, and I am pro-law enforcement at the local level in particular, that they, that they will draw an opponent who says, you're soft on crime. They know they're not supposed to be voting for these things, but they put their own interest in re-election first. The late Senator Fred Thompson would get up and make these speeches, and he had the credibility. I mean, he was not only an actor, he was a real prosecutor in life. And he would say, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be doing this. But they weren't persuaded by that. They were persuaded by the fact that they're scared to death regarding re-election. You mentioned, and this question for, for both of you, but um, uh, Professor Baker, you mentioned mens rea issue, or, the, or what we might call the mental state element of crime. What's the issue here, and should a culpable mental state be required for every federal crime? A culpable, there was no idea of crime without a mental state in the West. In Asia, yeah. But not in the West until the Supreme Court, well, it starts in the 19th century, but the Supreme Court in 1906 said that you could criminally prosecute, I think it was a railroad, even though you didn't have mens rea. And the idea that a corporation can be guilty is a fiction because you have to impute a mens rea that doesn't even exist. So why is that important? Because even Holmes said, you know, a dog knows the difference between, you know, accidentally hitting them and, and kicking them. It's intentionality. There's a difference between tort law and criminal law. Unfortunately, in the federal level, we are criminalizing things that may be unlawful, but they're not criminal. And, and we tend to have lost this understanding. Judge Nalbandian, in your opinion, are there things that need to be changed within the federal criminal justice system? And if so, what are those points in need of reflection? For instance, is there anything you'd wish either prosecutors or defense counsel would do differently? Hmm. I, I'm not sure I want to talk necessarily about my own views about public policy or what the, what the system, what we ought to be doing. I, I, I would be curious to see some empirical data, you know, in some of these areas that we have kind of mandatory minimums and habitual criminals and to see what whether there's a way to look at whether what we're doing is working and serving the kind of the purposes that we originally kind of thought of. And I, I don't, you know, the question about prosecutorial discretion is an interesting one because, you know, it's, it was back in the past, you know, prosecutors, the, the, the major discretion they have, of course, is whether to charge a crime or not charge a crime and whether to bring charges or not. The guidelines were designed to kind of stop some of the, the plea bargaining that they would do with the charges themselves. In other words, drop a charge, you plead to another charge. The guidelines, of course, have this kind of true conduct concept in sentencing where all of your all of your related criminal conduct 
is supposed to be taken into account when you um, calculate the calculate the the guidelines. Now, to the extent that we've, as a society, at least we seem to be moving away a little bit from the guidelines. There, I think there'll be questions about whether there'll be prosecutorial discretion will become more of an issue, uh, or even you know more important than it than it was in the past. It's certainly the the questions that John has raised about overcriminalization at, uh, at the federal level. Prosecutorial discretion is a check, I suppose, on that in a way because it's one way to say, well, you can you have ten crimes you could charge, but I'm not going to charge you for calling in sick when you weren't. I mean, so we do rely on on prosecutors in terms of the things, though, that they that I would say they would do differently. I mean, I, I I'm not sure I can speak to that. I can certainly speak to as a judge, you know, government lawyers. So typically in the in the federal system, uh, not everywhere, but you'll have a federal public defender and a, and, a, and a prosecutor who are litigating the cases. And for the most part, they tend to be very good lawyers, just on the whole. I think the quality is, is good. You know, I've spoken to groups before about kind of things that I would like to see in, in, the, in the nuts and bolts of how how they argue cases or what they put in their briefs and, and that kind of thing. But on the whole, I think the, the, the quality of the lawyering from the, from the government lawyers, both the prosecution and defense, I think is, is pretty good. Now, Judge Nalbandian, let's turn to the issue of sentencing and corrections, beginning with a lingering question regarding the Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. As interpreted, does the Eighth Amendment place any meaningful limits on terms of imprisonment? Can and should the interpretation of the Eighth Amendment change over time? Well, I, uh, I'm not sure I can speak to that really. I mean, it, the, you know, I'm, I'm duty-bound to follow what the Supreme Court has said, and I, I don't believe that the, they've interpreted the Eighth Amendment that way uh, in terms of limiting terms of imprisonment. You know, we've there are a lot of discussions within the criminal justice system about lengths of, of prison terms, and a lot of that surrounds mandatory minimums that you know Congress has enacted, and that is it's a public policy decision that and a discussion that is probably best had in the legislature and not necessarily within the judiciary. Although criminal sentencing traditionally is is obviously a function of the judiciary, but the legislature defines what the crimes are and, you know, typically defines what the sentences are, although, you know, we had a rigorous debate about the sentencing commission and the guidelines and separation of powers and, and um, you know, that, all that, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So, I, you know, that's kind of the courts, the Supreme Court has kind of stayed out of that in terms of using the Eighth Amendment and, you know, kind of their jurisprudence, they do kind of have at least existing jurisprudence is that there is some notion that the Eighth Amendment, what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment, has some evolutionary aspect to it. But again, that's a question that the kind of for the Supreme Court, and I will apply whatever they, they tell me that I need to apply. <laughs> Professor Baker, would you like to comment on this question? Yeah, I, th I think we've gotten out of understanding what, what was going on here. 
The Anti-Federalists wanted a Bill of Rights not because they thought it was legally binding. They wanted it in a hortatory sense. But once we got a Bill of Rights, it became legally binding. But that doesn't mean that, that the legislative bodies should be off the hook. There's nothing that prevents state by state or the Congress from saying, we don't think this kind of punishment is appropriate today because we have evolved. It is different for a legislative body, democratically elected, to say that than for a court to say it when what they have is the text when it was enacted. And in effect, when they do that, they're taking not only the prerogatives away from the legislative body, they're taking the legislature off the hook. Congress and legislative bodies everywhere, their members try to duck the tough issues. And they're happy to have courts be criticized for whatever they do. Yeah, I, you know, I would add that, and I don't want to, I, I can't speak to the policy behind or whether it's a good or bad idea, the First Step Act, which is the recent reform act that, that was had bipartisan support and, and, and was uh, recently uh, signed by the president. There are a lot of things in there. There was a lot of debate about it. But one of the things that I would say about it, just as a procedural matter, I think that they addressed some questions with mandatory minimums with that law, and that that's you know that would be an example of the legislature and the president deciding that hey we have a problem or we want to address it. You know, I'm obviously again I can't speak to the wisdom of it whether it's good or bad. I don't know, but um, and it's not my place as a judge to do that. But it does tell me at least as process matter that. The, I think probably the bodies that the, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists would have said should be dealing with those kinds of questions and those important policy questions for our society are, in, are dealing with them. Which, which raises a, a segue to, um, to discuss the, the First Step Act, at least kind of on a surface level. As a, for our, our listeners, uh, the First Step Act recently... Uh, enacted by Congress and uh, signed into law by the President, includes a variety of reform provisions. Um, as Judge Nalbandian mentioned, it's, it uh, has some impact on mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenders. It expands compassionate release for pr prisoners, uh, allows for more good time credits, which allow for the uh, release of an offender who, uh, who for good behavior. And it calls for some new rehabilitative programs and as was mentioned, it was passed by with broad bipartisan support. Professor Baker, do you have any thoughts on this legislation and its likely effect on criminal justice? Does more generally does the legislation address real problems in the federal system, and does it bode well for further reforms uh, due to this bipartisan nature of its enactment, either in the federal or the state systems? Well. I'm glad to see a reduction in mandatory minimums, even though as a prosecutor, I was dealing with mandatory minimums. I knew that in certain cases, mandatory minimums were simply unjust. Uh, I had a guy one time, he was a, the DA under whom I worked, Harry Connick, was very tough on mandatories. And so this guy, he had a, the only thing on his record were four this was going to be his fourth conviction for drinking paragoric, which he put on the gums of babies. 
So he's addicted to this thing. No other criminal record. And under this, I was supposed to put this guy away for life. Crazy. Unjust. And I had to beg to get it down to three. Why? Because we had to maintain an appearance and a reality of equal fairness across the board. If we were going to hit everybody with mandatories, we we're going to hit everybody with mandatories. Um, and we did. And in some cases, it was wrong. It was aimed at the so-called career criminal who was running up conviction after conviction and, and not doing any time. And the whole theory was take that 4% off the street, warehouse them, and you'll have a den on crime. The problem was that we ended up nailing some people that had no business being you know, put away for life. So I'm happy to see that. The, I think generally they, it sounds good, but the, my concern is that because the federal government, with all it covers under its criminal law, is giving solutions that are nationwide. And the reality is, in criminal justice matters, things vary from place to place, and the circumstances are so different that I'm not necessarily confident that five years from now, we won't have people saying, you know, this whole thing was a big mistake for X, Y, and reasons, and we will have empirical studies on both sides claiming this or that. That's the problem with over-federalization of crime. The more you keep it local, despite the fact that local government is not perfect and there are often injustices there, if you have many different criminal jurisdictions, rather than one massive one dealing with matters that should be left at the local level, I think we have fewer problems. And certainly, we have less national division. Related to this, and it's a question that, or a point that's been brought up several times, and just, just for, our, our, um, for our listeners to provide a little bit of background, the federal sentencing scheme, the, the so-called U.S. sentencing guidelines, as they were originally formulated and interpreted in the 1980s, um, uh, the guidelines set narrow mandatory ranges of punishment based on the crime of conviction, an offender's prior criminal history, and a limited number of additional considerations. In 2005, however, a Supreme Court decision called Booker rendered the guidelines advisory rather than mandatory and then allowed uh, district court judges to sentence defendants outside the ranges provided by the guidelines and to consider factors that were previously forbidden, all subject to review by appellate courts for reasonableness. Um, do you have any thoughts on this watershed change in federal sentencing from a scheme of mandatory rules, mandatory guidelines, to one that is advisory? Does one or the other system more, uh, is more consistent with what you think is a, a just approach to sentencing? My experience is that no matter what you do, the players involved will figure a way around it. Mandatories moves discretion from the judge to the prosecutor. We may have had abuses by judges, but I think the greater possibility of abuse is by the prosecutor. So I don't like to see that. This all happened because people distrusted what judges were doing 
On the right and on the left, they said, because sentences were not equal across the board. That's the problem you have. It's, it's the law versus mercy question, you know. D defense attorneys used to come to in all the time and say, uh, you gave this guy a break. Why don't you give me a break? Because we want equality. And then when you put equality in, they say, well, you have no mercy. It's, it's the old problem of the rule of law versus the rule of mercy. Primarily, the criminal justice system is there to protect the people by enforcing the law fairly. The real problems have to do, I think, at the federal level, not only with the number of crimes, but with, and I would call it vagueness, not just ambiguity. Many of the federal crimes, if they were state crimes, would be knocked down as a void for vagueness. But because Congress has enacted these things and given great discretion to the Department of Justice, the, the courts are reluctant. I mean, just look at the Skilling case in which Justice Ginsburg rewrote the statute because they knew the statute as interpreted was bad, but they didn't want to say, as Scalia wanted to say, it's void for vagueness. Uh, this, this reminds me of, of a point raised by Justice Kennedy, actually before the Booker decision, but in 2003. He described as misguided the, quote, transfer of sentencing discretion from a judge to an assistant U.S. attorney, often not, not much older than the defendant, unquote. Kennedy then went on to say that the judge is the one actor in the system most experienced with exercising discretion in a transparent, open, and reasoned way, and that most of the sentencing discretion should be with the judge and not the prosecutors. Do you agree with this sentiment? This is a question for either of you. That there, that perhaps there had been a transformation, a shifting of power uh, in sentencing from from judges to prosecutors that occurred sometime in an earlier generation, and um, is that problematic? And does it require the type of change that would shift it back? I, I think it was a problem. I think it was a real problem. Um, look, you have to understand that sentencing in a state court is operates very differently from sentencing in a federal court even prior to the federal guidelines. So I remember sitting in the chambers of one federal district judge who sat there around the table with the various federal officers, parole and all of this stuff, and sitting there and asking them for their advice. He really didn't want to take ownership or accountability for the sentence. Sentencing is a burden on the judge. And it's, it's a difficult burden, can be. Judge I worked for, I watched him ponder and walk around for days, sometimes on difficult cases, trying to figure out what was the just sentence. Now, state district judges don't have that, that luxury. They're sentencing people all the time. And generally, what they ought to be doing is, if it's an armed robbery and a guy's got a record, you know, the, the, the sentences ought to be fairly uniform as you go along. And, and many of them do. They can pop the sentences because they have to over and over again. But there's room in the system for play. So I've had defense attorneys, when I wouldn't give them anything and the judge I was working for wouldn't give them anything, they would just judge shop. So, again, it all comes, part of it is the institutional framework, the statutes involved, but at the end of the day, you can't ignore the human factor. 
And you have to pay attention, as the Federalists always did, to human nature. What are the incentives of the judge? What are the incentives of the prosecutor, the defense attorney? All of those. And you've got to, you've got to do your best to restrain them, each of them, from pursuing their own self-interest. Judge Nalbandian, can you comment on, on this question? Well, I think it's interesting, and John's touched on it already, the question of discretion. Um, you know, judges traditionally had a lot of discretion in sentencing, but I think, you know, when the guidelines were adopted, I think the idea was that there were disparities in, sentence, in sentences that were going on um, de depending on where a person was sentenced, you know, urban, court, rural, um, characteristics of the defendant, obviously concerns about minority defendants and, and older defendants, whatever it was. So the idea was, well, okay, well, we need to take some of that discretion away. And, you know, if you get convicted of X crime, you will get Y. I mean, people may not know the guidelines. There is literally a table, a grid, where you can look at what the person did, calculate the number, and you find the range. And um, that was designed to kind of create this, this kind of equalized system. But now, you know, the pendulum has kind of swung back, it seems like, and, and there are, um, obviously Booker changed things. Booker, of course, is based in the Constitution and the Sixth Amendment and, and what, what a jury has to find with regard to what a person has done and what they can be punished for. But there are, we're having these, again, these policy discussions about how much discretion should a judge have, and I think that there seems to be a consensus that there needs to be more discretion than, than the guidelines gave them. But on the other hand, we're also seeing a lot of discussions now about concepts like implicit bias and whether judges or anybody brings to a certain situation, you know, background assumptions and experiences that might affect the way that they do certain tasks, including sentencing. But if you increase discretion for judges in sentencing, you know, are you going to run into that issue? And again, these are all discussions that we ought to have, we ought to have, our elected officials ought to have them in a kind of reasoned manner. <laughs> and so hopefully that, you know, and, I, and I've seen that going on. Um, but as a judge, of course, I have to take the system and what it is. And, you know, we, we kind of operate within the confines of, uh, of, of the criminal justice system. But these are kind of questions of, of public policy, and, and I think that, that we're kind of in the midst of a, of a debate about sentencing and, you know, where do we go given the, the, the Booker and also given kind of the mandatory minimums and, and also the career criminal uh, statutes. I have a follow-up to that. As a, as a new judge with the training program. I know you mentioned that there was a day just on sentencing. Mm -hmm. Did you have an aha moment where, where you were like, I think I've got the hang of this? Or did that come later when you actually worked on real cases? I, I, I guess I'm just intrigued because I wonder what the learning, not the, it's not a learning curve, but it's more of a comfort curve, mm -hmm. so to speak. So I wonder how that played out for you and when you felt comfortable well, with that power? That's a, it's an interesting question because for me, as an appellate judge, again, I am one step or two steps removed from 
in, in the sentencing situation, the, the trial judge actually, you know, has the defendant in front of him or her and the victim, you know, often. And kind of the drama plays out in the courtroom and you, as a, as a trial judge, have to, I mean, you're pronouncing the sentence on this person. You are telling, you're looking at this person and saying you are going away for 20 years or whatever it is. I, I don't have that moment because I'm getting the record and I get the sentence and I get the pre-sentence report and and we have to make a decision um, you know based on on all of those factors and it's it, the way the system is set up typically I give discretion to what the trial judge did appellate courts are not looking at every sentence brand new and saying oh I would have done something different um, we tend to, and I think correctly, defer to the to the judge, to the trial judge who's in the courtroom and sees the person and hears the testimony and and makes up makes that decision. And I think that what I got from the training, at least, was that it was something. If you're a civil lawyer and you've never participated really in the in the criminal justice system. That to me, it it struck me as that was a new that was going to be something that that those judges had to become comfortable with, and and I don't know. You'd be curious if, if for you to ask that question to a to a new district judge and say, you know, have you ever become comfortable with sentencing? Because I know, you know, there are many cases that are very difficult, very difficult cases to to sentence. There are. You know, we could we haven't even touched on like child pornography, which is a huge issue in the federal system right now in terms of of the number of uh, cases that we're seeing, and and they are, you know, they're all kind of internet based situations, and the guidelines and the statutes, you know, in some sense they calculate the number of images you've downloaded, and and you it, there's some kind of calculation and. Some people are very critical of that. Others have said that's kind of the way to measure culpability. But, you know, that's just to say that I think the district judges, they, they really do have kind of the bulk of, of, the, of the heavy lifting on sentencing. I mean, almost all of it, frankly. And it's, I can imagine that it's just, and it could, can be extremely difficult in, in many cases. And they're, they're very dedicated, the district judges I know, to, to wanting to be fair. I mean, that's... Ultimately, they want to be fair. They, you know, there's a victim, there's, there's the accused. And so I think they, they take everything into account that they, that, that's out there and that the Supreme Court has told them and Congress has told them they need to, and they do the best job they can. So I have a final question for both of you. <clears throat> if you don't mind, let's consider a pressing issue in corrections. There are so many large corporations that profit from incarcerations, including most notably private prisons. Should we be concerned about the integrity of a correctional system that is directly affected by the profit motive of the, the private prisons industry? And if so, what should be done? If you're comfortable answering, we welcome the answers. I think I'll defer to Professor Baker. Well, as I was telling Eric, I actually represented not a private prison, but um, a very entrepreneurial sheriff who effectively ran his own private prison. 
he was a sheriff in a rural county in Louisiana called parishes, not counties. And he had a 17% unemployment rate in the county. So he went around and solicited various federal agencies to send their prisoners to him. And uh, the reason was that, uh, I think these numbers are accurate from the time, but maybe I'm off. So I think the feds were paying $65 a night for a federal prisoner and the state was paying $29 a night. So you see, it doesn't take long to do the math. And he, uh, he was able to bring in so many federal prisoners that the uh, unemployment rate in his parish dropped dramatically thanks to his entrepreneurial spirit. And this all, I got into the case because a federal district judge, without any basis that I could see, uh, demanded that th this particular sheriff come into the prison litigation that had been ongoing for years. Anyway, the profit motive doesn't necessarily only have to be in the private side. The question is, everywhere in the system, you should be looking at people's motives. It's not just you know, that certain people have bad motives. Everybody in the system is open to bad motives. And so the system should be in such a way that you're checking to see what's happening. The justification for private prisons, if there is one, should be cost. And if they can do this, as far as I'm concerned, if the conditions are better, if they can improve the situation, I'm not talking any kind of luxury lifestyle. I'm talking about basic safety. Jails and prisons are terribly unsafe. And what happens to an innocent person or even a criminal who's a first timer and had no idea when they get thrown into these situations and they are raped and beaten and everything else because the guards are not either able or willing to do their job. That is a real issue. So I'd want to look at it and not be necessarily suspicious because the private sector is doing it. I'd want to go in and see, is this a better facility than we have over here in the state? Now the downside of all of this is that if you build it, they will come kind of attitude and that there becomes an incentive to keep the prisons full and the encouragement to put people in jail. You know, they could build these things in such a way that they could be potentially multi-use in the, in, in the unlikely event that somehow the prison population reduces drastically. All right. I think we're finished up here. Thank you so much, okay. both of you, for your time. I know you two are very busy, and it was our pleasure having you here today. Absolutely. Thank you, Judge. Thank you, Professor. Thank you.